From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. Today's guest is Dr. Rebecca Penderbaum, current president of IMFC. Dr. Penderbaum is an associate professor and practicum and internship coordinator in the counseling department at Murray State University. She also maintains a small private practice, and she shared with me how as a master's student, getting to witness her professor conduct a couple's counseling session inspired her to become an MFT. I got to see her work with a couple live. Um, we did our practicum in our little clinic, and this couple needed to come in, um, and she didn't want to turn them away, but we definitely were not ready to see a couple that had as many issues as they were struggling with. Um, and so she saw them, and we got to observe behind the mirror. And just seeing your professor, my professor, in action, doing what she was amazing at, just kind of lit that flame a little bit more for me. And it was just like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to help those families. Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, you'll hear Dr. Penderbaum discuss her thoughts on the value and importance of professional service and advocacy. She also shares about the challenging nature of counseling families and how she strives to approach her clinical work with honesty and humility. Even after as many years as I've been doing it, I still stumble along the way. But again, I also have learned that it's okay to be transparent with the clients too. And I no longer have an issue with saying, hey, let me try that again. (laughs) I didn't say that how I wanted to say that. And so I think that that's been really helpful as well. I began our conversation by asking Rebecca to discuss how her childhood and upbringing influenced her desire to become a counselor. I was drawn to the profession of specifically family work really early on. Um, My family actually went to family counseling when we were little. Um, And I remember, I don't remember much of it, but I do remember the counselor asking us what we wanted. And I remember saying, I want to have more fun. Um, And we just had a really good experience as a family. We didn't have any, you know, deep-seated family issues. It was just one of those things where um, my mom's also a counselor and a counselor educator. And so I think that's where the kind of push to just jump in to some help before things got too significant. And so um, that's kind of where my passion started um, before I even really knew that that was a passion. Um, And like I said, my mom is also a counselor and a counselor educator. Um, And so I was sort of drawn towards psychology at first. And I thought, now I want to be a teacher. Um, And I had the chance to be a graduate teaching assistant during my undergraduate program. And I was like, ooh, this is kind of the best of both worlds. And then I got to do it again in my master's program. And again, I was like, I really like both sides, the teaching side and the clinical side. So I worked for about a year. Um, and then uh, started my doctoral program, um, and now I get to do both. It's I had a student actually, an undergraduate program. She's she's not even in counseling, and she said, "What would be your dream job?" And I was like, "I think I have it." I was like, "Get to teach. I get to have private practice. I get to travel all over and present to people and learn from other people." Um, so it's a pretty awesome field to be in. I think. I want to go back to you mentioning that. Your family was in counseling mm-hmm. as like a preventative measure, not as like a last ditch effort, which is yeah. so not the norm. Could you speak to just, I guess, maybe as a form of advocacy, like why that might be beneficial for a lot of people as just a way of conceptualizing counseling and just help seeking in general? Yeah, I think it's just so important. There's still so much stigma attached to mental health and seeking help. Um, when we really need to switch that mentality to it just becoming the norm. Um, and I know there are challenges with managed care and, and um, diagnosable issues and things like that. But I think the more that we can reframe that and get people um, to be less afraid of seeking mental health help and um, also advocating for you know, finding the right clinician too, because I think fit is so important as well. Um, but I think it's that stigma. I think once we can try to minimize that um, as best we can, then more people would be willing to give it a shot. And I think the more people who try it out um, are more likely, more likely to stick to it. And again, if we can get people in to help earlier, we're not going to have those significant deep-seated issues long-term that people often struggle with. 
Yeah, I was just hearing one of the presenters yesterday here at, as we record this at the 2020 IMFC conference, talking about how those who have positive initial experiences with counseling are much more likely to seek counseling mm-hmm. in the future should they need it again or should they want to take that proactive preventative step. You referenced the importance of fit. Mm-hmm. And I think about that from a couple perspectives. Uh, I say to my clients, you know, here's you know, my style and my background and my training and the way in which I'm going to attempt to approach this to the best of my ability, recognizing that I may not be the best fit for everyone. Mm -hmm. And also recognizing the importance of maybe needing to refer, should I not be that best fit? And so then I also think about how for clients or prospective clients thinking about like, well, what would I want out of a counselor and how would I know when it's a good fit or when it's not? So could you maybe give some recommendations for those out there who are considering going to counseling but are unsure of what to look for in terms of what might be a good fit for them, or even for counselors themselves to look for in other referral sources who might be better fits for Mm -hmm. their current clients. Yeah, so I do the same thing, and I teach my students that as well, that um, that relationship with your um, counselor and you is so important. And if that's not a good fit, I want them to know that I'm willing to do whatever I can to meet their needs. And if that doesn't work, you are not going to hurt my feelings. Um, Come to me. I'll get you into somebody who would be a better fit. Um, Because I'm sure like you, I'd much rather do that than somebody just stop coming in and have that bad taste just because it wasn't a good fit. Um, So I do teach my students to do that as well. And I think um, in terms of what to look for, that's just going to be different for each person and each couple. And then when you add, you know, the couple system, the family system, you have more and more personalities, it becomes even more difficult. So um, one individual may love the clinician and another might be like, nope, this is not a good fit for me. Um, I think in terms of couple and family work specifically, trying to find somebody who, you know, advertises and talks about their experience working with couples and families. Um, because not everybody has that experience um, and they will see couples and families. So I think asking the right questions. Um, so knowing, I know it's hard to not know <laughs> what you need to ask, but um, if you're specifically going in there for couple and family counseling, asking the clinician what's their experience with that. Um, maybe some successes and failures kind of things. Um, so I think that that would be helpful. Um, again, every individual is different. So that I think does make things a little bit more complicated. Um, I think it's, it's, it's easy to start to f- get a feel for a clinician pretty early on. Um, but I think telling people to, to empower themselves and advocate for themselves. And if something isn't working, then um, be transparent about that as the client as well. Um, And so I think we can do a good job, a better job maybe of, um, you know, putting those things out, whether we, you know, put that out on social media or we do news um, interviews and things like that where we can talk about um, how to kind of find that best fit. But I also think it's hard if you don't know who the individuals are. So, um, you know, I could, I could, do this interview or another interview and hit some of those, you know, commonalities. Um, But each individual is different. So I think just um, being transparent and open and not giving up as well. Um, Like you said, if it's a, if it doesn't feel good or right, then talk to the clinician about it. Um, And in terms of the second piece with clinicians, I think it's a difficult topic. I think it's hard for us as counselors, one, to find a place to go to counseling. Um, for myself as an educator, I place my interns in every agency anywhere near our university. Um, so that is a complicated issue in and of itself. Um, but I also think we can do a better job of working together as clinicians. Um, I think that's easy for me to say. I have a very, very small private practice. So um, I am always looking for places to refer people to. Um, and I welcome those referrals. Um But I think we have to get away from being territorial sometimes and just admit if this isn't a good fit, then this person I know works with this specialization or this special population Um, because there's not I'm not qualified or competent necessarily to work with every single scenario that might come in my office. And so uh, maybe reaching out as well. Um, I've seen a lot in our region recently of reaching out to medical providers as well um, and helping to 
um, advocate and encourage them to recommend services versus not versus um, in addition, if necessary, to medication. I don't want to sound like I'm anti-medication, um, but trying to kind of bridge the gap and and create those relationships with those providers. I, I get another referral source. Firstly, it sounds like it's so important to both educate and empower the client to realize that they have a voice and a role to play in what their care might look like mm-hmm. and how it should be tailored to their needs, yes. which may not always be a one-size-fits-all, as we know. Um, and that it's important for them to be informed consumers to know that it's okay and it's actually probably a best practice for them to ask those questions, mm-hmm. to know maybe what the leadership style or you know background of a counselor may need to be to mm-hmm. fit their expectations or their preferences, but also to know along the way if something was working and maybe not working as well now to speak up. Yes. And that maybe a counselor who's unable to hear that or cooperate with that or collaborate with that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person now has ceased to become a good fit. Yeah. And I think just, again, um, having their own voice. They, It's their counselor. It's That person is there to help them with what they're experiencing. Um, and so being able to have that voice and speak out. Um, and, you know, we are also, um, you know, under our ethical guidelines, required sort of to give those referrals. So, I mean, it might hurt my feelings that somebody doesn't feel like it's a good fit with me and I don't want and they don't want to work with me. But again, I'd much rather them get into somebody that is a good fit than just not go. You also characterize what an appropriate or even admirable response would be to say, like, stop being territorial and put the client's needs and interests first. And to me, that that's so aspirational. Yeah. That it's it's something that you know, we may ourselves practice, but it may not necessarily be the norm. And I know that advocacy is so important to you and one of the Mm -hmm. things you're really committed to. What are other areas that might be aspirational or may not be the norm yet that you feel really called to advocate for? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, there's so many. Um, Advocacy has been something that's just been a passion of mine for a really long time. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that had... um, a lot of money or status, um, but we were a happy family and we made things work and we had a great extended family that helped with things. And so I'm really just aware of uh, some of those injustices that are still around in poverty. 90% of my hometown was at or below the poverty level. So um, I just like to be really cognizant of that and really reaching out to the community. Um, I am also the uh, faculty advisor for our Kaising Mayota chapter. And so we are really about doing service projects, um, whether that's something just within our community or on a more of a global scale. Um, we've done some projects for third world countries um, in terms of raising um just funds, medical supplies, and things like that. Um, I think, though, we you don't have to advocate at that global level. I mean, it's great. And I um, I had the chance to go to Tanzania, Africa, a few years ago um, on one of those social justice trips, and it changed my life, like, in every sense of the word. It was an incredibly humbling experience. Um, and I want to mentor and pass that down because somebody did that for me. Um, and I want to do that for my students and for my clients, but I want to do it at the community level too. And it can look so many different ways, whether it's volunteering at a soup kitchen, um, collecting supplies for, um, organizations that might need it, like, uh, food donations, or we just did, um, one for our, uh, local organization called Needline, where we collected cleaning products and those kinds of things that they give to people who just are low income and don't have a lot of funds. Because again, from my experience, um, growing up, we had family that helped us with those things. Um, I think on um, the state level, one of the things um, that I'm starting to get a little bit more interested in is in national level, I guess, is legislative advocacy. Um it, that's scary and challenging sometimes, and I don't I don't necessarily see or want myself to be a lobbyist by any means. But um, there are issues out there that I feel like we really need to be advocating for. Um, basic human rights issues. Um, there's some big ones in a lot of states right now in terms of um, trying to get conversion therapy banned and things like that. Um, at the national level, something that ACA is really pushing is to get um, – 
LPCs and MFTs on the Medicare list for reimbursement. Um, it, it's been approved twice in the House and twice in the Senate, but never in the same year. <laughs> so um, I think we're up to 106 sponsors of that right now. But I think um, it's really just most important for people to find what they're passionate about. It doesn't have to be going to D.C. and advocating with your representatives or even to your state legislator. It can be at that community level, whether it's a youth group or a church group or just something that's passionate to you. And advocacy for me is a it's a it's a central piece of what we do as counselors. Um, but I think it sometimes it also gets pushed to the side because of all of the other responsibilities that we also have. When I think of uh, my time in a community mental health agency where you have way too many people on your caseload and all those notes and documentations. Um, sometimes we miss out on some of those advocacy opportunities that we can participate in because we're, we're just going through the day-to-day with all those responsibilities that we have. But I think you can also put advocacy into even things like your treatment planning and connecting clients to resources. So it can look so many different ways. But again, for me, the most important piece is to find something that you're really passionate about, a way to give back. Another thing that you're really passionate about is marriage and family counseling and couples mm-hmm. work. And you already kind of showed your hand earlier when you <laughs> Uh, talked about like the importance of looking for someone who has actual training in yeah. couples and family counseling as someone who might be a good fit to do that work. Tell me about how you became just interested and really passionate about MFT students receiving quality training. Yes. Um, it really, it started from my experience in my master's program. I had, um, so we were lucky. It, it was back in the day when uh, KCREP had a community mental health program and a couple and family program. So I had the opportunity to do both of those. Um, And my advisor in that program was just phenomenal. Her name is uh, Dr. Tracy Stinchfield. And um, she's no longer at the university I graduated from, but we, she's still a mentor. We still stay in contact. And I will say that it all, I mean, I always had an interest in working with couples and families, but I got to see her work with a couple live. Um, We did our practicum in our little clinic and this couple needed to come in um, and she didn't want to turn them away, but we definitely were not ready to see a couple that had as many issues as they were struggling with. Um, And so she saw them and we got to observe behind the mirror and just seeing your professor, my professor in action, doing what she was amazing at, just kind of lit that flame a little bit more for me. Um, and then again, I had professors in my doc program who continued that same thing. Um, and then as that continued, uh, I had somebody reach out about becoming a graduate student rep for IAMFC. And that's where sort of my journey to service started. Um, service is something that I'm very passionate about. I actually kind of have trouble saying no to service opportunities, especially ones that I really like. Um, but that's really where it grew from, just having that that initial advisor that was like, You've got what it takes. And then I got to see her do um, that counseling session. And it was just like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to help those families. But I can't help but think from where you were in your training and your knowledge, and then the many years that led up to that professor having that level of expertise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there were probably some stumbles and bumbles and missteps oh, yeah. <laughs> along the way. Could you share about some of those memorable stories where as well-intentioned and eager as you were to do great work to help those families maybe didn't go so well? Yeah, and, and I think it kind of speaks to the training piece as well. Um, I remember one of the first couples that I had after I graduated Um, I worked in a community agency. They didn't see a lot of couples, um, so they were really excited that I was there. And, of course, I was like, all right, I still don't know what I'm doing. Um, But one of my couples uh, got pretty heated in session. um, And I didn't really realize in the moment that they could hear them out in the halls because that they were yelling that loud. (laughs) Um, But in my training facility, we had super thick walls and sound machines and all of those things. So... It didn't seem that loud to me. And I even had the front desk call me and we're like, are you okay in there? And I was like, oh, no. Okay, rookie mistake. Um, but I think there's been a lot of, of ups and downs. Um, I think some of the most challenging clients, um, even to this day, to work with have um, dealt with some of those issues that are just super, not that all of them aren't personal, but 
that involve the like breaking of trust, infidelity and things like that. Infidelity and then also infertility has been another one that's been a real challenge um, because there's just so much deep seated emotion and connection to that. I, even after as many years as I've been doing it, I still stumble along the way, um, probably more often than I would want. Um, But again, I also have learned that it's okay to be transparent with the clients too. And um, I I no longer have an issue with saying, hey, let me try that again. (laughs) I didn't say that how I wanted to say that. Um, And so I think that that's been really helpful as well. Uh, So I think... In order to help with that confidence, um, for example, at, at my university, we have one class in couple and family counseling. That's it. Um, and they might get rid of it, which I'm fighting tooth and nail against. But um, I also tell them that's not enough. You're, yeah, you can see couples and families when you, after you graduate and you get your license and you've taken this one class. Um, but also reaching out for those other training opportunities where you can get really in depth with different things, whether it's going to a conference or doing a training online or those kinds of things. I think that that really helped to take my skills to a whole nother level um, outside of just that textbook learning, um, being able to be involved in, in uh, professional conferences where you can get more in-depth with the different topics. Um, that really helped my skill and really helped my confidence to be able to work with, especially some of those extreme cases that are really challenging. You said you eventually became comfortable with saying like, well, let me start over with that again. Mm-hmm. How did you think about that process or what strategies did you implement that enabled you to get to the point where you could exhibit that clinical humility mm-hmm. and have that self-compassion to acknowledge the missteps and to recognize that that still could be a beneficial aspect of mm-hmm. the counseling relationship. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, in my training program, uh, both my master's and then again in my doc program, it probably was solidified a little bit more in my doctoral program because I was then in that that avenue of teaching people how to do these things um, and doing the supervision and watching those mistakes in the moment and the, oh no, what did I just do? Um, I think that's when I realized that everybody flubs up sometimes. Everybody has those moments where they didn't say something how they wanted to. I'm sure I've done that probably more than one time just in this interview. Um, But it's okay to be human. It's okay to mess up. And um, I think clients respond well to that, to when you just say, like, you're not above them. You're on the same playing field when you say, that's not how I wanted to say that. Let me try that again. Um, but I, it, it was a few years into my career before I really got comfortable with saying that because I, I think early on I was still in this imposter syndrome, right? I graduated from my program and for a minute I was like, yes, I know what I'm doing. And then my client sat in front of me and I was like, oh, okay, I'm not sure that I know what I'm doing. Um, but as you continue on, you get, you just get more comfortable with that. And also having clients respond really well to that humility and, um, to admitting when there's a flaw and um, addressing it in the moment, um, that just builds the relationship, in my opinion. And I think it's even now, even when I'm supervising my students, they're always saying, how did you see that? How did you notice that? I just didn't see it in session. Well, I'm watching it on tape, right? When I was in your position in that room, I may not have seen that either. Um, so now I see my role as really trying to mentor them into that mentality where everything's not going to be perfect every single time. And here's how you can address that when it happens. Um, So hopefully they can make that adjustment to, to that a little bit earlier than I was able to do it. Well, tell me more about your clinical work and working with couples and families. What are some of like the common issues that you address or your areas of specialty that um, kind of guides a lot of the work that you do? Mm -hmm. So I see, um, probably youngest about four years old up to elderly. Um, I get a lot of referrals for marital discord for various reasons. They all come in and say it's communication. Um, I do a lot of work with infertility 
and with um, not a lot with infidelity, but that is a pretty challenging one. Um, a, a lot of people also struggle with um, how do you keep that couple relationship alive when you bring home your kid? Um, and that became really pertinent to me when I had my daughter um, three years ago. She's a little over three now. And um, even still now, it's challenging to be like, okay, we need a date night and we have to figure out how to do that. Um, so yeah, there's some communication stuff that goes on there, but I think it's also really about trying to figure out, um, what drew them together in terms of the couple relationship and pulling on that in whatever it is that they're dealing with. Um, because there, there was something that brought them together early on. And usually when I start out by asking them that there's a, a little spark, right? Not always. Sometimes they're, they're in such a challenging place that even that spark's hard to find. But usually there's a little, at least a little smile or something that comes up. And so I can pull on that as well. Um, but really the gamut in terms of anything that could be going on. Um, oh, one of the major things that we're dealing with right now is um, one of our major employers in our local community just shut down 800 people, um, many of which husband and wife or partners um, worked there. Um, 30 years. Um, so one of the things I've seen an increase in since they made that announcement is how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we move on from one? This is our whole source of income for our family, and it's all we've never known. Um, so that's been something that's been coming up recently as well. Those um, sort of transitional issues that happen a lot. Oh, and I guess the other major thing, I do teach at a university. I'm in a university town. So we do get a lot of empty nest um, situations as well, where um, for so long our life has been about caring for our children, and now they're off doing their own thing. What do we do now? Which, again, goes back to how it's so important to keep that couple relationship important during those child-raising years as well. Let's talk more about that couple relationship and what that may look like clinically and addressing some of these issues. You mentioned, you know, inviting them to think back to a time when they first met and there was that spark and that might lead to a gleam in their eye or a smile, but not always. Mm -hmm. How do you establish that moment of connection or that moment of hopefulness and then build on that, say in those initial sessions to help a, a couple to feel like there is still something to work toward or something to hope in? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sometimes I think you have to get a little creative with it. Best case scenario, I ask, you know, tell me about when you first met. Um, and they can tell those stories. And sometimes it's fun because they will remember it a little bit differently. Um, and, and sometimes they start laughing about that. Um, not always. Sometimes there's some frustration there as well. Um, but best case scenario, that's what I like to start with. Just what brought you together? Tell me about that first time you met or, or your first date, something like that. Um, if they're not able to go there um, because there's just a lot of conflict in the relationship or um, sometimes it's really difficult when infidelity has taken place and, and some things like that, that um, it's just too hard to go back and, and see that spark. There's been too much hurt for too long. Um, again, going back to how important it is to get into services early. Um, I sometimes will... Um, I don't like to see individuals and couples, but sometimes I might just do a little like homework assignment or something like that where um, I ask them individually to describe those experiences. And then you have some information you can pull on there as well. Um, I also think just normalization is so important um, because everybody feels like theirs is the worst case scenario. And you don't want them to feel like you're saying, oh, yours isn't that important um, because every situation is unique. Um, what may seem like a simple breakup to me could be completely and utterly devastating for somebody else. Um, so I think normalizing, though, and helping them to see that, yeah, this, this hurts right now, um, but there are some things that we can try that might make it better. And then I also think um, not as much about finding that spark, but I think as, as, especially as new clinicians, we also have to remember that not everybody that's coming to couples counseling is coming there because they want their relationship to continue. Um, and that was kind of a rookie mistake I made early on as well. Um, and so just being open to that as well, uh, that comes up pretty consistently in my class with my graduate students. Well, what do you do if? <laughs> yeah, what do you do if? <laughs> Well, I have started sort of asking that question early on, just in terms of, um, 
kind of goal setting and treatment planning and things like that. So, you know, what's your reason for coming to counseling? Um, and for the most part, they they usually are pretty upfront with with why they're there. And if it is something that they want to work, sometimes one partner's like, I really want to work on this. And the other's once I'm here because the attorney said to be here or she said to be here and those kinds of things. So um, there's not always an agreement in the couple either. But I think just making sure that you're asking very clear questions on intake, during the intake, um, in the goal setting process, because I don't want to be setting goals if they're not the client's goals. So if their ultimate goal is not to stay together, then that's not what I want to work towards. If working towards how do we co-parent but not be together is what they want, then that's what we need to focus on. Um, and I've had really good response to that. I think sometimes, sometimes students look at me and they're like, why would you ask that? Or what do they just say when you ask that? Um, but I think there have been some times where I've had um, clients want me to kind of explain, like, why would you ask if we want to stay together? We're here. Um, and so I just do that in that moment because not everybody wants to stay together. It, it, it is challenging when one is, is still really fighting for the relationship and another isn't. Um, that doesn't mean that they won't make it together. Um, doesn't mean they will. Um, but I think you have that starting point and you know where they're at if you ask the question. Just don't be afraid to ask the question. How much do you think couples counseling could be improved or the initial work could be so much more productive if couples came six months earlier? Oh, my goodness. Even two months, three months earlier. Oh, my goodness. It, just astronomically. Um you know, when we when we don't feel good, we don't wait six months to go to the doctor. Well, my dad does. <laughs> but for the most part, we don't wait that long to go to the doctor. So why do we wait that long when it's a mental health thing or a relationship issue? Um, and so I I just, I, I, I can't put a number to it, but the earlier, I mean, research is pretty clear about the earlier you can intervene, the better it's going to be. Um now, would it, will it save all those relationships? I don't know. But even if it didn't, they're going to be more cordial if they are to break up or divorce. They're going to, um, you know, still be able to have some of that relationship with each other and, and not be, not have so much animosity and anger and those things attached to it. So will all those relationships stay together? I don't know. But talking about it early on. Um, addressing it before it becomes an issue. You know, a lot of infidelity happens when couples start to who feel that disconnection from each other. And so if we can get in when those disconnection is when that disconnection is starting, maybe we could try to limit some of that extra stress that's happening on the relationships um, and give them the tools they need to address the things that they're dealing with. Um, I personally feel like everybody can benefit from couples counseling. I remember when um, my husband and I were getting married and my pastor was like, oh, I have never counseled a counselor before. And I was super excited about our premarital counseling. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. These are things are so important to talk about. Um, and But my pastor was a little um, hesitant to counsel a counselor. So we didn't do a whole lot of it, actually, um, which was a little frustrating. But But all those major topics, finances and do you want to have kids? Do you want to raise kids this way or that way? How do you punish your kids if you are going to have kids? How, are we going to raise our kids with one religion or another or no religion? I think the more we talk about those things before, the easier it becomes to not become a major issue 10 years down the road when you're, you're all of a sudden having that argument that one wants to have kids and one doesn't or whatever the scenario might be. On the topic of kids, you mentioned earlier how traditionally joyous moment of welcoming home a new baby can actually be a, an instance of division mm -hmm. or an opportunity for um, a couple to kind of drift apart. Yeah. In your work in addressing that issue, what are some of the strategies that you help couples to implement so that that joyful moment stays joyful mm -hmm. and yeah. actually creates connection rather than division? Right. So um, definitely doing things together. Um, and that might not mean that um, you can go on a date night every single week, uh, but maybe you can cook dinner together, fold the laundry together, ha just have a conversation together. Um, some of what Gottman talks about, and that's one of the programs I was trained in was the Bringing Baby Home program, is really trying to have five meaningful connections. Um, 
for every one uh, negative situation that might happen. So really trying to make sure that we are embracing those opportunities. Maybe it's not the most fun thing to fold laundry together, but we can have fun doing it if we're doing it together and connecting on some way. Um, I think love maps, again, another Gottman um, component, it can be really fun as well. Sometimes they, there's card decks you can do, there's apps you can do, um, and just learning new things about your partner all the time. Um, being patient is also really important. Um, and it's a learning curve. There's not a manual for how do you be a parent <laughs> to a child. Um, so there's a lot of learning al- along the way. And how I was raised um, is different than how my husband was raised. And how I want to do things is different than how my husband wants to do things. And so identifying together what we're willing to compromise on. And that's a huge thing is the compromise. Um, but again, finding those special moments. Um, try not to go to bed angry. That doesn't happen all the time. I, I'm being realistic. We try not to do that, but that doesn't happen all the time. Um, always talk about what the argument was about. I think um, that's something that my husband and I have wor- had to work a lot on. Um, we will get upset with each other about something. We go our separate ways for a minute. I'll clean something because that's how I handle getting angry. Um, and then it goes away. But we never really talk about the underlying issues of what that argument was really about. So being really um, conscious about that, taking that space when it's needed, because I mean, it's, I think about it this way. When have you ever told somebody to calm down and they've actually been able to calm down, right? That just makes them more upset. Um, so taking that time, to calm yourself down, but making sure that you still come back together um, and try to resolve whatever it is that took you um, down that road in the first place. But again, just finding those opportunities to, to be together and spend time together. Um, one one afternoon, my husband and I even had our, our date together and it was literally taking a nap because Maddie was at daycare and we were like, all right, we are together, but this is what we both need right now. Um, so again, just finding those little things that you can connect with. Another aspect of your work is addressing uh, clients who are in crisis and trauma. Mm-hmm. Could you speak about what that work has been like and and why you're so passionate about it? Yeah, it so it it's super challenging. Um, I so I grew up the daughter of a counselor and a firefighter. Um, I was always terrified about my dad being a firefighter. Um, a fire truck would go by, and I would just have anxiety. Um, you know, when storms happen and everybody's taking shelter, they're going out in it. Um, and so early on, I was kind of exposed to some of those, um, different, um, aspects of, of, of what can cause some anxiety. And and luckily, um, nothing major ever happened, um, to him. Um, but growing up, I also learned about crisis debriefings and working with, um, first responders when they've experienced many of those serious calls. So I also had to learn, um, that, you know, if it was a line of duty death by a firefighter, that wasn't a debriefing that I could do, um, because at the time it was just too close to me. So I think that that's really important when we're talking about crisis and trauma work, that you also know your limits and crisis work is not for everybody. Um, you have to have a sense of calm about you um, when everything else is and inside you might feel completely chaotic um, and the outside is chaotic, but you're presenting yourself in a really calm demeanor to the people that you're trying to assist. Um, I feel like uh, in the world that we live in today, there's just so much trauma. Um, it's like everything can go back to trauma. Um, you know, even, you know, Again, having a kiddo, obviously, she's a really important part of my life because I talk about her a lot. Um, thinking about taking her to public events um, and things like that. And and in the back of my mind, still having that feeling and that thought that something could happen here because you see it all the time. I've yet to teach the crisis and trauma class where there's not been a major mass casualty event. So, again, I, very similar to the couple and family work, I just think it's so important that we're really focusing on trauma and how do we address that and how do we address it properly? Um, I don't think that everybody has enough training really in how to do that. Again, we have a class and it's crisis and trauma combined um, at our program. And so again, finding those opportunities for how do you really 
um, learn how to address those situations. Um, I talk a lot about self-care. May not always be the best at doing that myself, but I try to teach it to my students so that they can start it early on um, and be good at that throughout. I worked um, during my doc program at a organization in Idaho called Family Services Alliance, and we worked with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And um, it was a really rewarding experience, but it was also exhausting sometimes. And it was part-time. And I think I learned early on my limits to how many um, serious trauma uh, clients that I could work with back-to-back or even during a week. Um, Could I do that job full-time? No, there's no way that I could have worked with that population all day, every day, and kept my own mental health. Um, I also think just in terms of our own mental health, making sure that we're having opportunities to um, have our own consultation or even our own counseling when we've had some of those cases that have been really difficult um, and and re- not being afraid to reach out and being vulnerable a little bit. Um, obviously, we have to protect confidentiality, but um, we also deal with the sometimes the saddest, sometimes the most gruesome, just really um, traumatizing situations for the client that can also then impact us as the counselor as well. So just making sure that we are always paying attention to that. Um, A good example, and I I know she'd be okay with me sharing this. uh, My mom was also an educator at a university that had a school shooting. Um, And she went in, she was crisis um, expert, in my opinion, um, and very well trained. And she went into work mode when that happened. Um, And it wasn't until several months down the road where her body was just like, I can't do anymore. Um, Because she had put on that sort of game face for so long to help all the other people. Um, And I just think that's a really good example of how we have to be cognizant of what's going on for us and stepping back or away when we need to dealing with clients in crisis or trauma. Yeah, like our default or our MO might be professionally that we have the calming demeanor that we seem like we're the one who's in control when the person sitting across from us or the family sitting across from us feels like everything is outside of control and maybe not being as aware of internally what might be going on Mm -hmm. and the toll that that takes long-term on our ability to present and provide the things that we just, you know, assume that we always will. Yeah. So I appreciate you giving that example. That's, um, it's very honest, raw, real illustration. Yeah, it can sneak up on you very quickly. To transition a bit, you're the president-elect of IAMFC, mm-hmm. and you've already noted your commitment and passion to advocacy, but I'd also like to ask about your kind of mission and goals for your years as the upcoming president of IMFC. Yes, I am very humbled and excited um, to be in this position. Um, I've had some great mentors throughout the way that have have helped me to get here. Um, And so I think for the next couple of years, what I really want to focus on is, again, those advocacy efforts, but um, member connection, I think, is so important. And growing our membership, making sure that we are assessing what their needs are, just like we would if a couple was coming in. Um, and so reaching out, trying to um, find out what our members want from the organization, whether that um, is more podcasts or bringing back some webinars, um, specific trainings at the conferences. Um, so just, again, reaching out to figure out what our members want um, and then uh, providing opportunities for people to get involved. Um, I think that's huge. Someone gave me an opportunity to get involved and it just blossomed from there. Um, I think when you think about, you know, a board position or something like that, it might seem huge and that not for everybody, but you start somewhere. Um, And so volunteering, um, reaching out to professors that students might have. How do I get a little bit more involved here? Um, We have so many opportunities at the conferences, whether it's to help with uh, facilitating sessions. What better way to get involved than to facilitate a session? You get to sit down on a session and hear it. And really all you have to do is ask somebody to sign a sheet. Um, So you're getting that education. You're getting your foot in the door. You're meeting people. I mean, I look around the halls at this conference and the, the people that are here are just so 
amazing and they are leaders within our profession internationally um, and and also still so humble. And so getting up to getting to walk up to Sam Gladding and have that conversation or be introduced to him um, and many of the other board members that we have as well. Um, and not just board members, just people at, all over. Um, I've already had people reaching out about um, you know, helping website and registration and all these different things. There's a fit somewhere in any organization. I would most certainly love it to be our organization. But um, I think finding that the area that you have expertise in and saying, hey, is there something I can do? And I'm sure we can find something that you would be really good at doing. What drew you to become involved in IMFC just at the initial level in terms of, you know, getting your foot in the door and then eventually ascending to the position you're in? And I guess what kept you involved all the years in between? Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of different things. One, um, I actually signed up to go to my first ACA conference um, before I was a graduate student. My mom was going. And so I was like, okay, um, I'll go with you. I'm starting my, the master's program. And um, I think that'll be fun. And then, of course, when you sign up, it has all these divisions. And I thought, all right, well, my degree is in marriage, a couple in family counseling. Let's sign up for that one. Um, and then you start getting the family digest and you get the journal and there's just so much information in there that I kind of look forward to it. A little nerdy, kind of look forward to it every time it comes. Um, but again, having those mentors. So my mentor in my marriage and family program was a member of IMFC. Um, when I moved out to my doctoral program, same thing, members of the organization. And it was just being a member of your professional organization was, it, it wasn't something you even thought about you just that was the culture you just did it you joined your professional organizations um and then when the opportunity to apply for the graduate student position came up i thought okay this is kind of that next step um and it all happened through somebody saying hey i think you'd be good at this um and it continued from there um in fact pretty much every service position i've ever had has been because somebody has said hey i think you'd be good for this um so even if you don't have the confidence to do it, somebody has that confidence in you. And just hearing that, I think, can really push you in the right direction as well. Um, it's also the people. Like I mentioned earlier, it's not just the big names that you see, but there's just that collegiality that happens and the conversations and the laughter and um, just being able to connect. Because, again, our jobs are hard, um, especially those that have counseling jobs. I mean, I don't. There's challenges to being an educator too, but it's not the same as working with clients all day, every day. Um, so having that chance to get out and connect with other counselors and interact and just have fun and share your passion areas and connect in different ways, that's what keeps me coming back. Just to add to what you've said based on my own personal experiences, um, yeah, so many people who are so accomplished yet so approachable and so humble and so quick to think of others before themselves to yeah. be the person to say, yeah, hey, I think you would be good at this. But also to have enough care and concern to say, hey, I also think this would be good for you, either yes. professionally um, with your goals and interests now or on the track that you hope to mm -hmm you know, progress along. So yeah, I just want to affirm and echo everything you've said. And I'm excited for you to begin to implement your vision and, and begin the concerted effort toward those goals. Thank you. Are there other things that you'd want to say about IMSC as we wrap up that maybe I haven't asked you about or we haven't covered, but you still want to emphasize? No, I think um, it really is just about continuing to send out a message of um, hope and education and connection. Um, again, like I said, just reaching out to the members. Um, I don't see myself as a top-down leader by any means. And so um, if there's something that needs addressed or, hey, have you thought about, I am 100% open to hearing those and taking them to the board um, and seeing what they think as well. Um, I really, really want to work on fostering the relationship with universities and um, our states because they have those relationships with the universities so that we can continue to mentor people as they're going through their graduate programs and um, then graduating and still wanting to stay involved. Seeing the value, it's not just a price tag. Sure, the more divisions that you're part of, the more associations you're part of, it is expensive, but there's a value you get to that. And so helping the public 
um, and and uh, future counselors, current counselors to see what that value is will be one of my main focuses. Well, if we want to thank you for your time and for your many insights and stories. As we wrap up, I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest at the end of the podcast. And that's just to think about a time in your life where you thought about something in a certain way, or maybe you were progressing just business as usual. And you realize like the way in which you were progressing, the way in which you were thinking about that thing maybe wasn't the best way. And you step back and you reframed that reality and it had a positive impact on your life. Originally, I was thinking about something else, but but I think the thing that comes up to, for me right now is um, this idea of imposter syndrome. And I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier, um, but I've really had a lot of that since I got elected, president-elect of IMFC. Um, when Dr. Gladding called and said, hey, you won the election, I was like, oh my goodness, Dr. Gladding called me on the phone. What do I do now? Um, and just ex- also experiencing some nerves. Um just coming to the conference and, and being at that table with all of, of the board members. Um, and I was continually telling myself, you shouldn't be here. You don't have the books they have. You don't have, you know, the experience they have. Um, but with the help of some others, the reframe didn't come all to myself, but with some, with some help from others, it was just reassuring that there's a reason I got to where I'm at and I want to use um, the opportunity to help mentor other people and no i don't have the books they have and i'm not known in china like some of the individuals are and across the globe but i can i can have an impact of my own Um, and so i i've been able to slowly move from that i shouldn't be here to i have something to share too the reframe is a production of the international association of marriage and family counselors If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.